Let's turn together, if we would, to the book of Zechariah. If you're not sure where Zechariah is, you can find Matthew. And you just go left, two books, Malachi and Zechariah. And it's right there. Zechariah is one of the twelve minor prophets. We started two weeks ago in our new sermon series on Zechariah. And we will be looking this morning at chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 2, verse 13. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Zechariah chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? He said, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. And these have come down to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to the young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all round, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, After his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. For it is by your word that we know you. It is by your word that we truly know ourselves. Lord, we ask that you would give us comfort and hope from your word. For by the power of your spirit, O Lord, your word is life in our lives. Lord, we ask that you would bless us this morning. Draw us ever closer to the Savior. This we ask in Christ's precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, this morning we are looking at the second and third visions of the prophet Zechariah. The last part of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Interestingly enough, in the Hebrew text, chapter 2 begins at verse 18. And I think that's useful to look at because these two visions go together. They give us a picture in vivid color of the Lord as the protector of His people. The one who defends His people and the one who brings them joy out of sadness. So this morning I would like us to see three things from these two visions. The first is that we shall see the enemies of the people of God defeated. The enemies are defeated. The second thing we will see is that God's people are defended by God himself. And the third thing we will see is the prophetic reversal that is described by Zechariah, a reversal that we long for in our own lives, to see things be put right, even as the Lord has declared. Enemies who are defeated, God's people who are defended, and a reversal that the prophet brings before us. This book of Zechariah is, amongst other things, a series of visions that come to the prophet at a time in which God's people need them more than perhaps any other time in Israel's history. This is the second in a series of visions that we see here, and we have a marker in our Bibles letting us know this. You'll see that verse 18 begins, And I lifted up my eyes and saw. Four times Zechariah will do this. It shows us that he is receiving a vision from God himself. We'll see it again in chapter 2 at verse 1. Remember the context of these visions. Israel has just returned from exile. And This is not some kind of fabulous return from a retreat. Israel has brought back a ragtag small group of settlers to come back to the smoking ruins of Jerusalem and the temple. They are wondering how they will possibly rebuild the city, the temple, and their lives. Because you see... All of this began with the exile that came about because God was angry with Judah. He was angry with Judah and he used the nation surrounding Judah to punish Judah. To tell Judah that he had had enough of their idolatry, of their wanderings, of their ignoring his word. But the interesting thing is, is that the instruments of God's punishment upon Judah were not pure in their motives. We cannot imagine that the king of Babylon suddenly woke up one morning and said, you know what I'd like to do today? I'd like to be a servant in the hands of the living and true God. I think I will help him 
to bring his people to repentance. No. These are wicked empires and wicked nations with wicked kings acting on their own wickedness. And so you see what has happened here now is that God has come about to deal with them for their own wickedness. And so Zechariah sees this vision. It's a vision of four horns. And then Zechariah does something that he will do throughout this book that I imagine you are doing each time you see or read the vision of Zechariah here. You look at it and you say, what's going on here? What does this mean? What are these horns? You see, that's exactly what Zechariah does. He says, what are these? And thankfully, by God's grace, both for Zechariah and for you and for me, God sends an angel to describe what is going on here. But we can also understand, I think, the context just from knowing about the biblical culture. So the angel answers that these four horns are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And so we immediately are struck with the idea that these are the nations around Israel (coughs) who have been used by God to bring punishment upon Judah. But which nations are they? Many commentators have spilled a great deal of ink trying to convince people that they know exactly which nation is which. It's Babylon. No, it's Persia. No, it's Rome. No, it's Germany. No, it's Russia. I think the safest bet is to look at the text and to go as far as the text goes. The text doesn't tell us what these nations are. It doesn't describe for us who the peoples are. It leaves them actually very general. What it does tell us is that they are horns to give us a picture. And that they are, there are four of them. Now what does this mean? In a society like Israel's, it was basically an agrarian farming society. So they knew an awful lot more about animals and crops than you or I did. They didn't go down to the grocery store to get themselves some meat. They raised it right on the land. And so amongst all of the animals that they had, it was proverbial that the strongest animals were the ones who had horns. Now you should easily understand that. You live in the land of the Texas Longhorns. You drive by where cattle are grazing and you immediately are struck by these these huge cattle that have these long horns. You wonder how they can even keep their head up with the weight of the horns. And you see, that's the biblical image Zechariah wants you to get. He wants you to get the image of power because that's what horns were in the Old Testament. They were an image of power. And to lift up one's horns, as is described here in verse 21 of chapter 1, is to pridefully use your power and authority over others. To be arrogant. And this is how these powers, these nations are described. They are powerful. They are arrogant. They have taken out their wrath upon God's people. But again, who are they? I think the simplest answer is that we are told that there are four of them. And whenever there are four of something, it describes throughout the world, 
Think about that for a moment. How many points on a compass? Four. North, south, east, west. How many different types of winds? Four to match them. It's not even without surprise that there are four Gospels. You see, four here in the Bible is a number describing all of the world, the entirety of the world. So what Zechariah is seeing are the prideful nations throughout all of the world who come against God's people. It's not limited to Babylon. It's not limited to Rome. What Zechariah is describing may be what you experience in your life right now today. The power of authorities who are arrogant, who seek to oppress you, who seek to separate you from Jesus Christ. To tell you it's it's foolishness to believe in the scriptures. You see, these are the enemies of God and his people. They are the ones who have scattered God's people. And they represent all of the earth. Now, this should not surprise us because God's people are always under attack. We are experiencing more and more of that as the church today in America in the last decade or so. You read the news or listen to the reports and you'll hear about some new law or legislation that is designed to go against the scriptures, to go against Christian beliefs, to go against what Christians believe is true. But this is not a new phenomenon. If you had traveled throughout the world and gone to the Sudan, or to India, or to China, or other parts of the world and said, well, how do you feel now that persecution is finally starting in the last ten years or so? I have a feeling they would look at you with the strangest look you could imagine. Because for most of the world, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ have been persecuted for centuries. They have been sold into slavery. They have been ostracized. They have been made poor. You see, God's people are always under attack by the enemies of the Lord Himself. And this is something that frightens us, if we're honest about it. You see, you remember the context of this second vision is the first vision in which God says He is returning to His people and He is returning in mercy to build them back up. It's one thing to have the promise of God. It's another thing to believe it in the face of fear. It's the same kind of fear that can grip you and me at night when we read the promises of God and His Word and then we wonder what we will do if the stock market crashes. Or if a nuclear bomb explodes in an American city. Or if war goes throughout the world. Or if terrorists attack. You see, it's hard to keep our focus upon God and His promises when fear gets in the way. And that's what the Israelites are experiencing They're they're ready, even waiting for it all to come crashing down again. After all, they'd already seen it happen once. And so Zechariah continues with the second part of this first vision. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? Now you see, Zechariah is already afraid because he's seen the horns, he understands the danger. And so he doesn't even ask who the craftsmen are. 
He just wants to know what they're going to do. Are they going to help? Or are they going to hurt? Now the word here for craftsman in the Hebrew is very general. It can describe anyone who works with a sort of material. But I think the context that we have here, especially with the horns, oftentimes horns are made of iron, they are strong and have power, is that what is meant here are blacksmiths. They are four craftsmen that God has sent, four blacksmiths, to help deal with the horns of power. Now the emphasis with a blacksmith is not necessarily on his skill, but on his ability here, his ability to confront the horns. And what they are is they are here to show the power of God, that God has not abandoned his people. Because after all, Zechariah tells us that they are able to cast down the horns of the nations. In verse 21. And more than that, not only do they cast down the horns of the nations, they actually terrify them. They are enough to strike fear in the hearts of God's enemies. Now, this is important for us to hold on to. Because you see, we are afraid of things in the world, aren't we? I'm not going to stand here and tell you that you don't have any problems in your life. I'm not going to be so naive as to say to you that if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've come to know Him by faith, your life will be absolutely perfect. Work will be a breeze. Your marriage will be top-notch 24-7. Your family will be perfect with children joyfully obeying all the time. No one will ever have a bad relationship with you. And you'll never run out of money and you'll never get sick. That would be a lie. It would be a lie that you could tell easily the falsehood of because your life proves it false. We all have problems in life. But what Zechariah tells us is not that we don't have problems, not that there aren't horns of power against us, but that the power of God is greater than our problems. Think about that for a moment. Think about the worst problem you have the thing that you are most afraid of, and understand that according to the Bible, what you are most afraid of is afraid, terrified of God. It is terrified. Because it knows it cannot stand up to God. You see, the craftsmen are here to set things right. They are here to solve the problems of the people of God. They are here to lift them up and to push down those who arrogantly come at the people of God. Now, how do they do this? How do they confront these powers against us? How do we confront the powers against us? Well, if these are blacksmiths, let me ask you a question. What does a blacksmith use? The main implement or tool of a blacksmith is a hammer, isn't it? That's what they do. They have a hammer and they hammer out and they destroy things or they forge things upon an anvil using a powerful hammer. That's interesting because another prophet writing just shortly before Zechariah, the prophet Jeremiah says this, In Jeremiah 23, 29. 
Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? (coughs) You see, what God is telling us is that all of the powers that are arrayed against us are inept, are unable, are destroyed against the power of His Word. God's Word is more powerful than anything arrayed against the people of God. And this is the weapon of the church. Far too often the church is seeking other weapons besides God's Word. Trying to find the right methods. Trying to find current events. Trying to make itself relevant. And pushing aside to the back burner the very Word of God, which God tells us is the power unto life and to protect us from the attacks of the enemy. You see, God's Word is the power for us. This is your weapon. It's the beginning of a new year. Have you thought about regularly being in God's Word? For some of you, that may mean trying to read through the Bible in a year according to a plan. For others, it just might be taking time out of your day, each day, to read God's Word, to understand what He is saying to you and what you need to hear from Him. That is your weapon against despair, against discouragement, against fear. Your powerful weapon is the Word of God. The second thing we see in our text this morning is God's people being defended. And we see this in vision number 3 in chapter 2, verse 1. It's a new vision as Zechariah once again lifts up his eyes and sees... And what does he see? A man with a measuring line in his hand. Now remember, the context for this vision hasn't changed. The return of the people of God, the rebuilding of the city of God, and the fear that they have in the midst of it. Now, one of the things that I find is so comforting about God is that God never gets tired of us. Now, you know what I mean. When someone asks you over and over and over and over again to explain something. When someone just doesn't get what you're telling them. After a while, you get tired of them. And you say, why don't you get this? I'm not talking to you anymore. I'm not going to explain myself anymore. I've given you plenty of chances. Right? Some of you are internally nodding your heads. Maybe because you've been told that by others. But you see, God doesn't do that. Do you notice how God keeps speaking into our lives? He keeps trying to encourage us, saying the same things over and over and over again, so that we not only know them, but we live by them and we act upon them. And so he gives yet another vision to Zechariah and the people of Israel. He sends this vision of a man with a measuring line. So then the question that obviously comes up, What are you measuring? Now, for many of us, in our mind's eye, we have a picture of a man with one of these gigantic measuring tapes. You know, the kind that when you pull it out, if you don't press the button right, it whips back at you and snaps on your hand? That's not really what's going on here. 
This is a measuring line. It is what was used by architects and contractors and construction people to measure out buildings, to measure out the length of roads, even to lay out cities. We see here that this man is doing more than just measuring buildings. He's measuring out the entirety of the city. He's measuring it out so that walls will be able to be built. You see, he's measuring the city of Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was the center of God's kingdom. As a matter of fact, it was so important in God's kingdom that the people of God had convinced themselves that no matter what they did, God would never destroy Jerusalem. They would be safe. As if there was some kind of magic talisman in the middle of Jerusalem. But it had come on hard times. And God had finally visited His punishment upon His people. They had ignored Him for so long. They had gone into idolatry. They had ignored His word. They had not listened to His voice. And so God had destroyed it. But He's not through with it yet. And so He's brought the people back and they are now about to rebuild the temple. And I think in this vision of the measuring line... What we see here is the thought of God's people trying to understand what they think they need. And what they think they need is protection. After all, there are hostile people on the outside. They've already been carted off once to exile. They need walls. They need walls even more than a temple for God. And so the measuring line is out there to measure the length of the city. If you are to build walls in a circle around a city, what would you measure? Let me take you back to geometry days. How do you measure the circumference of a circle? You measure the diameter of the circle. And then you calculate, right? Because the circle is much bigger in length than just the length across of the city. You know, one of the ways that I help to describe Houston to people who've never been here is I talk to them, well, we don't have walls. We have loops. I talk to them about the 610 loop and about the beltway. And then once I've got them thinking about that, I look at them very intently and I say, you know, they're building a third loop. Really? It's called the Grand Parkway. And you know when it's done, how big it will be? How big? 200 miles or more. And then I watch their jaw drop. You see how big that is? Because it's got to encompass the whole of the city. You see, that's what the measuring line and the man is doing. He's trying to measure out how the people of God will defend themselves by building a wall. They are focusing away from God, away from His temple, upon their own protection. If we're honest with ourselves, this is how we live too. No, I don't mean you build a wall or a moat around your house. I mean, we think about where the boundary or the border of our lives are. Where's the safe point end? How far can we push spiritual discussions with others and remain safe? Where can we go and speak about the gospel and evangelize, and yet remain safe. You see, 
We like to know where we are. We like to know that we're protected and we like to know where the boundaries are. We don't like this kind of fuzzy feeling. We want to be walled in so we know how far we can go. You know, they have done studies about this, that if you take boundaries away from children, they wind up huddling in a corner because they don't know where the boundaries are, where they can stop, where they can go. They're looking for self-protection. You see, this, if we're not careful, is what the church can do. But there's an interesting response that comes from God. You see, the people are trying to figure out what they need, and God is going to tell us what He provides. The man is going to measure the city, and the response is what? Run! Run! Say to that young man, stop! Jerusalem will be inhabited as a village completely without walls. You don't need to measure. You don't need to predict, to protect. Now, there's a sense of urgency here that comes from God. Don't build any walls. Don't even measure for them. Now, this kind of goes against all common sense, doesn't it? If I don't have walls, how will I be protected? But you see, God is providing an answer to this to us. And his first answer is, he has a purpose for the city of God. You see, presumably, the measurement would decide how big the city would be. And what God says is, what I have planned is far beyond anything you could even dream is possible. There are going to be so many people that come to the city of God that we will not be able to make a wall to keep them all in. As optimistic as you are, God has greater things in plan. What would you hope for this year? For missions? Or for evangelism? How many would you desire to be brought to Christ? Hundreds? Thousands? Tens of thousands? Whatever you can dream, God's dreams and reality are bigger. You see, the Lord is establishing His kingdom. It is a kingdom without parallel or peer. It is a kingdom that is expansive, where people from all the nations come in and swell its ranks. And God wants no barriers to that kingdom. He doesn't want a wall others need to go over. He wants it open for them. You see, the church is not a secret or an exclusive society. It is open. It is open to all of the world. It is something that we invite others to come in. We long for as many people from as many races, as many tribes, as many languages to be gathered into the city of God. And we've seen this come true in a way, haven't we? At least partially. Because the city of God has gone beyond Jerusalem, hasn't it? I hope so. You're sitting in a room in Texas. Do you know how far that is from Jerusalem? For almost all of us, we have no Jewish ancestors. The city of God has exploded over all of the world because God has a purpose to bring in His people. He also provides the protection we need in the midst of this because walls do have a purpose Beyond boundaries, they're also protective. And so, Zechariah might ask, how will we be safe then if we have no walls? 
You see, it's easy to focus on the danger, to be clouded from a view of God. But God's answer is simple and powerful. Me. I will protect you. I will be a wall of fire around you. You see, this recalls the imagery of the exodus of the pillar of fire that went before and after the people of God and protected them. But now here it is greater still. It's not a pillar of flame. It's an entire encirclement, a wall of flame. Nothing can get past. You see, what God is saying is, if we follow after Him and His purpose and His kingdom, He will be our wall. He will protect us. Instead of seeking worldly power, we are to seek God's favor. Because when we look after the world's ways, all that is found there is failure. This is the story of the history of the church. And this is very important for us today. Because brothers and sisters, if we are honest with ourselves, in America, in 2016... The church at large is seeing all worldly power slip away from it. We used to have the protection of certain laws. We used to have the advantage of certain cultural and societal norms. The world is changing. We cannot prop ourselves up on the things of the world. We must look to the Lord Himself, for He is our protector. He is our Savior. He is our victor. You see, it is the glory of the church to have God not only as her wall, but what does Zechariah say? And I will dwell, I will be the glory in her midst. We have God himself in our midst to show us his glory and our purpose. The third and final thing we see this morning begins in verse 6. And it is a prophetic reversal. You see, God comes to us not only telling us what our situation has been. And who He is and what He will do. He describes for us how things will turn on their heads. How we should have great hope. And He does this in a prophetic way that is so certain to our eyes and our ears that we can have hope. The first thing he describes is how he will take us from sadness to joy. Now God knows that all of this is difficult to take in. He knows that our problems are not waved away with a hand. He knows there are challenges before his church. He knows that we struggle with sin and the enemy. He knows we're disappointed with the way the world is. That we want to see things be set right. And this was a problem for Israel. You see, if their false optimism about Jerusalem led them to complacency and exile, now their false pessimism has led them to believe that God has abandoned them forever. That Israel will never rise again. That Jerusalem will never be rebuilt. That God is gone for good. And so God reminds us and encourages us to see His work. And so He begins here with a command. Up! Up! Now He wants to get your attention. Some translators translate this, Oi! Come! Get up! 
You see, God wants our attention. He doesn't want us just observing what He is doing. He wants us active, involved, and living the life of following God. You see, He wants us to wake up and move forward. He wants us to know that He is on the move and He will protect us. Now, that doesn't make our lives perfect now. But it gives us hope and joy to know that the Lord is on the move. You remember that famous scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? That as the children are traveling with the beavers in the land where it's always winter, but never Christmas, there are saplings that start to come up. There is snow and ice that begins to melt. There are birds that start chirping. And what does Mr. Beaver say? He says, Aslan is on the move. Now you see, it's not as if there's not some ice in your life that you might not still slip on. It's not an 80 degree beach day yet. But God is on the move. He is building His kingdom. He is redeeming a people. He is writing creation. And we should be joyous and excited about it. God commands you. He says rejoice. Sing. Could you imagine that? That we can be so often caught in a funk that someone needs to command us to be happy. But look at the grace of God that He will not allow us to sit and mope. He commands us to rejoice, to see what He is doing and to rejoice in it. We have to take our eyes off the circumstances and put them on the Lord. It's like when you're outside and a great giant storm is winding down. You can look at the black clouds as they recede and the few bolts of lightning. Or if you look at a different part of the sky, what can you often see? A rainbow. A sign of joy. A sign that the time of fear is past. This is what God wants to put before us. To show us a vision of what He is doing that we might have hope and joy. And He also makes this very particular. Because you see, if we ask ourselves, how can we do this? How can we rejoice in times of sadness? How can we rejoice when so much around us is wrong? How can we have hope when so many are against the church of Jesus Christ? Well, the answer is found in verse 11. Do you see? And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. You see, beloved, I think too often we have a view of the church that somehow we're like the Spartan 300. There's only a few of us. Nobody else is coming to our help. And we hope we could just possibly hang on. That's not the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is expanding. Is on the offensive against the world and the devil. Is not just trying to hold on, but is bringing in, saving as many as God will bring. From all sorts of places. All different kinds of people. 
speaking all different kinds of languages, living all different kinds of lives. This takes us back to that view of Jerusalem that is swelling, is bursting at the seams. You see, God is turning His enemies into subjects. The enemies are not just being pacified, they're being gathered together. And this is the story of Israel. This is what the prophet said to Israel. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established at the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow into it, Isaiah says in chapter 2. The psalmist writes in Psalm 22, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of nations shall worship before you. It's the story of missions, isn't it? It's why we send out missionaries to gather together God's people from all over the world. And after all, if we are looking carefully at it, it is our story as well. You see, your story is that you were an enemy of God. You were hostile to Him in your nature and mind. And rather than pacify you, God has brought you to Himself by the work of Jesus Christ. He has turned an enemy into a worshiper. If the Lord God can do that with you, how can He not do that in the other nations? You see, this is where our hope comes from. We remember that we were at one time alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, separated from Christ, and stranger to the covenant of promise. We had no hope and were without God in the world. And the Lord God has brought to Himself a people. Now why does He do this? Does He do this so we can be happy? Does He do this so that we can have friends? Does He do this so that we can be right with the world? No. Look at verse 13. Be silent all flesh before the Lord. For he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. You see, God does all this for his glory that he might be worshipped. That all might worship him. And this gives us great assurance that he will bring it to pass. For he will not deny himself the glory that he deserves. It is not about meeting our expectations. It is about establishing the reality of the world, who God is and who His creation is. This is the vision that God has given to Zechariah and to you and to me. It's a vision that we can have hope that God is on the move, that He has defeated the forces arrayed against Jesus and His church. Do you long to see this vision fulfilled? Then have great hope. Push onward. Do not be afraid. For God himself is a wall about you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the word that you have brought to Zechariah. Lord, remind us that we are your servants that you are in control, that you are our wall and our shelter, and that we have nothing to fear, but that we should just follow you, seeking your will.
This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.